all for being here today. So if you will, join me again in the book of 1 Peter in chapter 3. You know, if you've been following along with us throughout the pandemic, we started 1 Peter about the second week into it, and we've been making our way through the book of 1 Peter. I've enjoyed it, and I hope it's been enjoyable for you as well. And let's get everything in place. Okay, now today we're going to be talking about the topic of uh, suffering for doing good. Suffering for doing good. It just seems to be unfair that that would actually be a statement, but however, it's just the way it is, so therefore we have to find a way to deal with that. And so how do we do it? Now what we're going to be going through today are verses 13 through 22. Maybe we might get that far um, in that, but we're going to be going from 13 through 17 primarily but a lot of what we're going to cover has to be built on the foundation that we laid last week. That has to be done in context to what we um, have there. Because in verse 13 it says, And who is he will, who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Now, what, being followers of what is good. Let's go back to verse 8 and let's take a run at this verse to see what um, Peter is going at here. And in verse 8 it says, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender-hearted and courteous, not turning evil for evil, nor reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you might inherit a blessing. Now, that's the character of a Christian, and that's the character of a Christian regardless of your circumstances, regardless of the people's behavior who surround you. This is what the character of a Christian should look like. Loving one another, being compassionate, courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for, for reviling, but looking for every opportunity to be a blessing to people around you that you may inherit a blessing. Then he goes on to talk about how, how would, um, or he who would love life in verse 10 and see good days. We all want to love life and see good days, and this is how you do it. Basically control your tongue. Watch what you say and watch what you do. Don't speak evil and don't speak lies, but also don't let your activities be that, that are evil. We also must be proactive in doing things that are good. So it's not, not just to abstain from doing evil, but it's to make a conscious effort to do good, to be a blessing to the people around us. To say encouraging words, use your words to build people up and never tear them down, and use your actions to be a blessing to people and not to hold them down. That's what we are called to do, that we might inherit a blessing. This is what Peter is talking about. Now also understand the context into to whom the people he is writing. Remember, these are people who are under oppression. These are people who have been driven from their homes because they were Christians. And this is still the, this is still the instruction that the Apostle Peter sees fit to give them. Be a blessing. Do not return evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but be a blessing. Watch your tongue and, and, and pursue peace. And verse 11 says, let him seek peace and pursue it. Now your blessing is found in verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on, those, are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. That's the blessing. If you want to receive a blessing, it's good to have the attention of the one from whom all blessings will flow. And we see that here, that the righteous are the ones whose eyes 
are on, who, who's Jesus, who, who the Lord's eyes are upon, and his ears are bent towards their prayers. And the psalmist wrote that, that also he will withhold no good thing from those who walk uprightly. So we have a blessing there in that we have the attention of the one from whom all the blessings flow. And if we find ourselves committing evil, it says the face of the Lord is turned against us. And then he goes on, and who, in verse 13, where we are in today's passage, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Now think about that. This gives you the best case scenario of living in peace in this world, is it not? Pursuing what is good. If we go back several weeks into what we have talked about in the book of 1 Peter, we see that if we, are, we need to be an upstanding, law-abiding citizen, being submissive to the government, we need to be good employees. Our work ethic should be very strong and very honest. We talked about the relationship between husbands and wives. Whenever someone gets reviled, or it's very unlikely for someone who goes through all this would be reviled, think about the character of a person, one who's an upstanding citizen. He never seemed to do anything wrong concerning the law. His work ethic is, is far above everybody else's. He's a man who loves his wife. He loves his children. He's a family man. He actually looks, he's actually a person who is very compassionate and courteous towards all people. You never see him um, return evil for evil or reviling for reviling. He always uses his words to build people up. He's always looking for ways to do good for other people. That's the kind of person that, that we're looking at here that is unlikely to receive, um, unlikely to receive um, harm from other people. But it's not a guarantee. That's something we need to understand. But your best case scenario for us to live at peace is to follow the very teachings that we've been going through the last several weeks. Be a good, be a good citizen, be a good employee, be a good family person, and always look for, look for ways to be a blessing to people around you. But in verse, in verse 14, it shows that that's not a guarantee. Okay, It's not a guarantee, but it's the best case scenario. In verse 14, it says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, but even if you should suffer, that tells us one, it's a possibility and very likely to happen, especially in the context that we're going to read and especially in the context of our current history. It says, but if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. You are blessed if you suffer for righteousness' sake. So what is the reason that they are actually coming into suffering? It's for the righteous behavior and their good conduct in Christ that has brought them to a point of suffering because of the outside world, bringing harm to those who are doing good. That is a possibility. He says, but if you are, if you should find yourself suffering for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Folks, I want us to understand something here. Regardless of what this world throws at you, regardless of the circumstances that you find yourselves in, if you are in Christ, you are blessed. You are blessed because we find well, also what First Peter told us in the first chapter, that if you are in Christ, then you have an inheritance. You have an inheritance that is undefiled, incorruptible, it will last forever, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the very power of God, and it is reserved for you on the last day. We will, we are a blessed people. We are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. We are called to proclaim the praises of him who has called us out of darkness and into the light. We are blessed, folks, regardless of your worldly circumstances. We have reason to be blessed. We have reason to praise. We have reason to keep moving forward and living in a righteous way that glorifies and honors God. But you are blessed 
But not only that, but we also have the eyes and the ears of God directed towards us, as we see back in verse 12. But you are blessed, and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Now, why is it that we should not be afraid of threats? Because we've already covered that the eyes of God and his ears are bent towards us, the righteous, those who are living righteously. So make, so make, so make, so make no mistake about it. Anything that's done in the name of Jesus Christ, God notices. And when he sees his people, if they're going through suffering, he notices. And he's working, and he's working his way to bring about good through all of it. But we never, ever abandon the clear teachings of what Scripture is. And we never abandon the righteous living because of the suffering. And we certainly don't abandon it because of fear of mankind. Because we serve a much greater God than man ever could be. So don't worry about them. Don't fear their threats. And nor be troubled by it. And don't even be troubled by their threats. Don't even be agitated is another way that it could be translated. We're all pretty easily agitated, right? Anybody know that? It's pretty easy to be agitated and frustrated, but he, said, he goes, and goes as far as to say, don't be afraid of their threats and don't even let it bother you. Now, this is a mark of a very mature Christian who can hear the evil that's done against them, can hear the reviling against them for doing good, and yet not be agitated or bothered by it. Because the mature Christian can have an understanding that the way that people live is typically and most likely based on what they believe to be true. And if they are reviling you for righteous living, then they are living according to what they believe is true, but it's actually a lie from Satan himself. And if they are living under a lie, then they are the ones who are captivated by that lie. And if they are captivated by that lie, we sh they should be of the most people the most pitied. Therefore, we should be the most compassionate towards them, and we should also tell them the truth with that love and compassion. So don't even be agitated by it. Because honestly, if they, if they are reviling you for righteousness' sake, then they have believed a lie, and Satan has got them entrapped in that lie. So don't be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks of the reason for the hope that is within you, with meekness and fear. So don't be afraid, don't be dismayed, don't be agitated, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. So when we sanctify the Lord God in our hearts, we give God the, the place of priority in our lives. We put him where he needs to be, and we seek to honor and to glorify him by, by, by living out what, what the scripture teaches us to live. And we follow the instructions that Jesus has left for us to follow. And we follow him and we seek to please him we sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. So whenever they do come and revile, so whenever they do um, revile us for our good conduct in Christ, we're not worried about them. We're not agitated by them because our focus is on pleasing the Father, the Heavenly Father, God, following the teachings of Jesus Christ in Scripture. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you of a reason of the hope that is within you. And be ready to give a defense. Now, the word defense is the Greek word apologia, which we get the word apologetic. How many of y'all have heard of biblical apologetics before? Okay, biblical apologetics. So it's not the art of saying you're sorry, okay? But it's actually the art of defending your faith with facts and evidence. 
that show that the, that the New Testament is true and the scripture is true and that Jesus Christ did rise from the dead. There's many different topics in the, in the, um, in the realm of apologetics. But sanctify the Lord God in your heart and always be ready to give a defense. Be ready to give a defense. That means you have to be prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks of the hope that is within you. And I'm going to be honest. I think that our church has done a really poor job, not this particular church, but as a whole, in preparing people to give a defense. The average Christian does not have the ability to stand against the average skeptic. I'm talking about average to average. That's why, and you'll hear me say these words until, until these numbers change, but 85% of our young people walk away from the faith after one semester in college. Why is that? Is it because they, is, was it because that we sent them off into the real world fully prepared to give an answer? Or not prepared at all? Or maybe just a little prepared? So we have to understand that there are answers and a lot of times what happens is they'll get off and they'll get off into the real world and they'll listen to skeptics and they'll hear the questions that are asked, which are good questions to, to have answers to. But what they find out is that nobody has the answers. Their pastor never, never taught them that. Their Sunday school never taught them. Their parents never taught them. And therefore, they get sent out unarmed into a battlefield and they find themselves losing. Not only losing, but they switch teams and they go off into the, in, into the world simply because they don't have a defense for what they believe. Many will go out knowing what they believe, but they don't know why they believe what they believe. And therefore, they're very weak in that, and you'll find them walking away. So we must be prepared to give an answer. Be ready to give a defense of what we believe, of the hope that is within us, and with meekness and fear. Now, that's very important. With meekness and fear... In other words, with humility and respect. How many of you would rather someone talk down at you or would you rather be treated with respect? Are you going to be more likely to listen to someone who is humble and respectful as opposed to someone who is arrogant and disrespectful? Obviously, the first. Now, I do a lot of studies in biblical apologetics, and therefore I watch a lot of theological debates on many, many different topics. And I've seen it from both sides. I've seen it where the Christian is arrogant and disrespectful as well as the atheist being arrogant and disrespectful. And what you will find is that when you're arrogant and disrespectful, nobody listens. But whenever you are humble and respectful and cordial with one another, even atheist to Christian, you will find that the conversation will go much better and you will find that there is some learning that happens even maybe on both sides. So it's very important that not only do we look to give answers and maybe even look to defend the faith, but we look to defend the faith in meekness and in fear with humility and respect. Now, humility and meekness is not weakness. Okay, Often it is the more bold thing to do to be humble and to be meek. meek meekness is power under control. And you will find that if you do know what you're talking about, that meekness, humility, and respect is not difficult. <laughs> it's whenever we find ourselves backed into a corner with a question that we can't answer that we come out very offensive. You know what I'm talking about? So they also say in a debate, whenever you're watching debates, the first person who throws the first insult is the one who loses. Okay? So in order for us to do this with meekness and fear, I believe it requires us to be fully prepared with the information and the knowledge of Scripture to back up what we believe when that answer is asked. They kind of work together in that. 
So they are very important that we do so. To be prepared and ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you the reason of the hope that is within you with meekness and fear. Verse 16, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. So having a good conscience. We want to have a good conscience before God. That's the ones that, he's the one we are trying to live right for. So if we have a good conscience before God, it doesn't really matter what the world reviles you for. Because what we find here is, is that they are, they are defaming them as evildoers. Listen, having a good conscience when they defame you as evildoers, not that you're an evildoer, but you are being defamed as you are one. And why are they doing that? Because of your righteous living before God. They're defaming you as an evildoer when you are doing good. It says, and those who revile your good conduct in Christ. What are they reviling? Your good conduct in Christ. So when you're faced in the world and you're being defamed as an evildoer and you're being reviled, make sure you have a clear conscience before God in that. Now, we do live in a world today, right now, in times where evil is being called good and good is be, being called evil. It's clear. It is clear. When we stand on the clear teachings of the Word of God in our culture today, especially there's some hot, hot topic buttons, that whenever you preach the clear teaching of Scripture on it, you will be labeled a hater, a bigot, as an evildoer, and you will be reviled for it. But when you do it, and don't skip around it, you have a clear conscience before God. Have a clear conscience before God without worrying about what the world, don't be afraid of their threats and don't be troubled by it. You continue to live righteously and never abandon the teachings of verses 8 and 9. Having a good conscience. Because, because when they defame you and when they revile you for your good conduct in Christ that they may be ashamed. You won't be ashamed because you have a good conscience before God, but they very well may be, be ashamed. And I pray that they would be ashamed in this life, that they are reviling someone for their good works, and that by our good works, as we see back in chapter 2, that they may see our good works and observe and glorify God on the day of visitation. They may become ashamed before God and repent and trust in Christ for their Savior because of our good conduct and our praising and glorifying God and teaching them the truth with meekness and fear. That's what I would hope. But also, they would be ashamed before the judgment seat of Christ and that they'd never received it and rejected the truth and spent an eternity separated from God. But they will be the ones who are ashamed, no doubt, if you are being reviled with a clear conscience before God by living rightly. And in verse 17, for it is far better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than doing evil. Okay. Most likely, you're going to suffer. Right? So let it be for good. Let it be for good. If you're going to suffer, let it be for good. Let it be because you are an outstanding citizen who has an incredible work ethic that loves your family, that always seeks to speak, to speak good to people, to do well, to be a blessing to others. Let that be the reason that you suffer, if you suffer at all. 
Because it's far better for you to suffer for doing good than to suffer for doing evil. Now, in verse 18, again, we see the example in Christ here. Now, I'm going to say that there's some, there are some, uh, there's some words in, in, this, in this between verses 18 through 22 that I need to gain some more understanding on. But let's not ignore the, the, the full teaching here, the overlying teaching here. And I may go back and, and I'll, I'll let you come away with more questions and answers like I do on some of this stuff. But however, the overlying truth that we find here is that Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. The just has suffered for the unjust. Christ has suffered for mankind. Christ is the supreme example of undeserved suffering. If anyone has suffered for doing good, it's Jesus Christ. The reason for which he came was to suffer, to bring about a good cause, and that we might be reconciled to God through what he has done. As we see in verse 18, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and being made alive in the Spirit. Through his suffering, we can be brought to God. We can be reconciled to God through what he did, being put to death and being made alive again through his resurrection. I want us to go to verse 21. It says, There is also an antitype which now saves us, Baptism, not the baptism that is removing the filth from the flesh, as it says there. It's not talking about the baptismal waters. But the answer of a good conscience towards God, which is repentance, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So through the suffering of Jesus Christ, through suffering for doing good, the supreme undeserved example of suffering in Jesus Christ brings about salvation through his resurrection. In verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, Angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Yes, Jesus Christ died, he was resurrected, he's ascended, and he's in complete and total control. And all authority has been given in heaven and earth, have been given to him, and, he's been, and he has given us a job to do. And that job is done whenever we really focus on how to do it in verses 8 and 9. Being compassionate, understanding, loving as brothers, tenderhearted, courteous, never returning evil for evil, nor reviling for reviling, and being willing to suffer for righteousness' sake. Why? Because Christ suffered for righteousness' sake, for doing good. Therefore, we can too. Make sense? All right, now do you guys want to see what I'm struggling with on, this, on these verses? Okay. Now, I'm, I'm exposing myself here a little bit. But I, will, but I will say that once I started to study into it, I, I mean, I, I wasn't getting it, but also once I started looking into different resources and things, I found that many theologians have the same thing. That they're not really sure about what all of this means, but however, it's very interesting. Very interesting to say the very least. So I'm going to go on the rabbit trail with you, and maybe you can go and study it, and maybe if you have the answers, we can come talk about it and get this thing figured out. Sound fun? Okay, so what we have here in verse 18, there's one, there's one thing in verse 18 that, that I've not really understood yet. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive, um, but made alive in the spirit, uh, means that he was dead in the spirit. And that may have happened whenever he actually became sin on the cross and the wrath of God came upon him in, in his death. 
But through the Spirit, it says, by whom, so he was made alive by the Spirit, by whom, talking about by the Spirit, also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Anybody know what the spirits in prison are? Okay, there's a couple different, different scenarios. I, I, will give you the, I will give you the one that I think actually matches the best, and it's this. The spirits in the New Testament were not souls of men. Okay, weren't the souls of men. Actually, they are actually called souls. And spirits in the New Testament are typically angelic beings, most likely demonic. Demonic beings. And we see the differentiation there in the end of verse 20 when it says that eight souls were saved through water. We have the souls of man there, but we also see spirits. So there's a, there's a difference. So he went down and he preached to the spirits in prison. Now, preach, that doesn't necessarily mean he preached a sermon. He just proclaimed something to them. But the spirits in prison who were formerly disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. So these are spirits that have been blocked into a time. What's, what, what time in history? time of Noah, right? At the time of Noah, whenever he was building the ark, when the ark was being prepared. It says, who were formerly disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. Okay, so he apparently went and preached to demonic spirits in prison who were disobedient during the time of Noah. So let's turn over to 2 Peter. He makes another mention of this. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. Now in verse 4 through, four through 10, we have two different events that are taking place. We have the flood, the judgment of the world, and we have Sodom and Gomorrah, a city that was judged. In verse 4, it says, for it, in, in First Peter or Second Peter chapter two verse four said, "For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah." Okay, this is also tied to the to the time of Noah, and we see in verse six it says, "In turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes." condemning them to destruction, and then he goes on to talk about how he saved Lot. So we have two different, two different events here that we're talking about and how, and how he spared Noah in the, in the time of judgment, but we also see the angels who sinned, but they were cast down into hell and delivered into the chains of darkness. So it's starting to look like there were angels that were disobedient during the time of Noah that were chained in darkness. Does that make sense so far? Yes, I know, it's kind of, it's kind of weird. Now, if we go back to Jude, I'm taking you on this journey with me, and I hope you have more questions like I have more questions than answers with this. So if you go to Jude, verses 6 and 7, again, we have the angels of Noah, or we have the angels condemned along with Sodom and Gomorrah. And verse 6 is, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he, was reserved in ever, he has reserved in everlasting chains, so this is angels in everlasting chains, under the darkness for the judgment of the great day, as Sodom and Gomorrah. So now he's relating the angels to the actions and behavior of Sodom and Gomorrah. Of Sodom and Gomorrah, that the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, 
and set forth as an example suffering the vengeance of eternal life. So now what it appears to be is that we have angels during the time of Noah who were disobedient and they were cast into a prison of darkness and chains of darkness for what appears to be sexual immorality. Now, what, now does this make sense? Okay, so the only thing that I can do is go back to Genesis chapter 6, and let's see what we find there. So in Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 1, now I find myself in another passage of Scripture that has boggled my mind for years. And these dots sound like they connect. It says, Now it came to pass that when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men. Now the phrase sons of God in the Old Testament, in every case, it's speaking of angelic beings. You can write these verses down, Job 1, 6, Job 2, 1, Job 38, 7, and Daniel 3, 25. Where the phrase sons of God refers to angelic beings. And so verse 2 says that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with men forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be numbered 120. And verse 4, And there were giants, okay, or the Nephilim. Okay, I've done an extensive amount of hours in studying giants and Nephilim. It seems like the evidence is overwhelming, but covered up in conspiracies, so you don't really know which way to go. More questions than answers, all right? So, so there were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward. So during the time of Noah and also afterward, that when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men of who were of old, men of renowned. So it seems as if, if we're going back to 1 Peter chapter 3, that whenever Jesus went and preached to the prisoners, to the, uh, to the um, spirits in prison, it, it looks like it is these. I could be wrong. I've got more questions than answers, but it, is, it has an understanding as these angels being tied to the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah and likened unto them. And we see here that the sons of God came in with two daughters of men, you know, in a perverse way, <coughs> bearing the Nephilim people or giants. And these were the men who were of old, these were the renowned men. What does all this mean? I don't know. I don't know. So that, that's, that's the journey I've been going on this week. But however, but however, so why don't we know a little bit more about the Nephilim or the giants? Why isn't there more information? Well, apparently the writer of Genesis, because they were renowned men in that culture, they were just very well known. So there wasn't, there was no need to expound on those people during those times. So I'm just going to chalk this up to another question I'm going to have for God when I get there. <laughs> Maybe Peter, since he actually referred to it twice and talked to Jude about it as well. But however, I don't want you to get caught up in that. It's interesting, very interesting, but I don't want you to get caught up so much in that as the overall teaching of what we just went through. You know, we are, are called children of God. We are called to be a blessing to the world. We are called to deliver a message. We are called to not, to not uh, partake in any evil actions or evil speakings. 
And in doing so, and living righteously, it's very likely that you will come about suffering because of your righteous living. But when you do, you have a clear conscience before God. Do not fear the threats. Don't be bothered by it. But keep on living the way that Christ has called you to live. Now, Christ is not asking you to do anything above what he has already done for you. You have your perfect example in Christ and that he suffered. He was the just suffering for the unjust and that we could be reconciled to God. Stand firm. Run your race. Stay faithful. Trust in Christ and live righteously. And never allow your circumstances to be an excuse for you abandoning the clear teaching of Scripture and the fact that God has called you to be a blessing. Amen? All right, let's stand. Let's have a hymn of invitation this morning. If the Lord has worked on your heart, if you have a decision to make for him, the altars will be open. I'll be down front.